0: This evening, we are going to begin the third chapter out of six chapters in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we have been on this adventure in Ephesians since January. I anticipate we're going to be on this adventure well into July. Uh, And by some standards, our pace is actually even considered a little bit fast. I know some preachers who take well over a year to preach through Ephesians. There's just so much richness in this text. One thing we need to remember is to stand back and say, this is a letter. When you receive a letter in the mail, you probably don't take six months to read it, pausing every few sentences, savoring every word, and dissecting it piece by piece. You probably sit down, read the whole letter, because the whole letter only makes sense when you read it completely, right? All this to say that as we enter the third chapter of Ephesians, let's remember that we're reading a letter from Paul to the churches of Asia Minor. He's writing from prison, and he's writing to tell the church what the church is meant to be from God's perspective. It's what the, what's really going on under the surface in people's lives in the church. So far, Paul has been praising God for all the wonderful things he's done in Christ. We talked about this before, but he almost can't contain himself as he's as he's going on about all these wonders of God, it's as if he, he you know, I, I imagine his scribe is they're trying to keep up with Paul, and he just would you say I can barely keep up with you? It's like when you have a little kid and they come up to you after they've been to the zoo and they want to tell you about the, the penguins or something, and then and then and then and then and you know, it's like, like stuttering for ten minutes straight because they can't get it out. They're so excited. I don't think Paul was stuttering, but I think he was going off on how amazing God was. Remember, he had one sentence in the first chapter that was 202 words. All of this praise about how God chose us and adopted us and redeemed us through the death of Jesus. How he broke down dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles. And how Christ offers us a new way to belong, a new way to relate to one another. He says we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. That means we're part of this new politic, this new kingdom of God. And we're part of the family of God, adopted by the Father. And each of us is part of the temple of God, handpicked to be something, to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. In fact, each of us who follow Jesus is part of the church, a living stone. A temple of the living God. You and I as a Christian community are the vessel that houses the glory of God. And I know that that's that's a mind trip right there. And that's just a review from last week. So you have to listen to that one online if you forgot about it. But part of the reason for this recap is because I know some of you are joining us for the first time or you've been gone a while. But more importantly, it's because as we turn our attention now to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is going to begin with the words, For this reason... And when Paul is beginning with those words, he's, go, he's looking back and scooping up all those wonderful things he's been talking about in the first two chapters. And he's going to use those things as a foundation, as a track on which his new train of thought is going to take off. Would you stand with me as we read Ephesians 3, 1-7? through 7? For this reason, I, Paul, The prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to be the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. Father, thank you for this word and just for the, the fact that we... We live on the other side of the mystery being revealed. I'm thankful for that, Lord. I'm thankful for your servant Paul and all those who have gone before us, who have received revelation from you and transferred it that we we could know it. And I pray, Lord, that we would do more this evening than know these things in our heads, but you would make them real through your spirit in our hearts. Change us, Lord, from the inside out. Amen. You may be seated. So before we dig into the text, I want to explain my strategy this evening for how we're going to approach it. What we're going to do first is take a look at Paul's message. What is he trying to communicate here in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7? Second, we'll go back and look at the messenger. We're going to look at Paul himself. And I think we're going to see some important implications for how to live as we take a look at the messenger. So, first, the message. In our English Bibles, we have the benefit of all this punctuation and commas and periods and versification so that we can, you know, make sense of what's going on. But in the original Greek, verses 1 through 7 are one long sentence. And actually that shouldn't surprise you by now as we've been working through Ephesians and actually it's kind of one of Paul's shorter sentences. But nonetheless, that's a nice little segment for us to look at this evening. Now, as I mentioned before, Paul begins his sentence with the words, For this reason. It's a way of reaching back, collecting his previous thoughts in which he's going to now build a foundation, build a track, and he's going to run this new train of thought right on those tracks. But this isn't the kind of slow train that runs through Bellingham with a bunch of freight cars on it. This is like a squirrely bullet train. And if we're not careful, we're going to miss where he's going. Here's what I mean. Based on Ephesians 3.14, so skipping ahead a little bit, 3.14 begins with these words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul's about ready to start a prayer. And I can't wait till we get it. That's a wonderful, beautiful part of this chapter. But Paul's about ready to begin a prayer. And he's about to do that here in the beginning of chapter 3 as well. But it's almost as if mid-thought, he's about ready to start praying. He's, he's recaptured by the gospel, and he just wants to reiterate it one more time how wonderful a thing that God has done in Jesus the Christ. So he begins it this way, Ephesians three one. For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, bow my knees before the Father? No. Pray? No. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, insert excited tangent here. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Pause for a moment and consider Paul's words. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of... Of the Gentiles that's you and me unless we happen to be Jewish Paul was writing this incredibly encouraging letter a letter that exalts God he's writing it to the Gentile churches in Asia Minor from a Roman prison because he's been accused falsely of allowing a Gentile man named Trophimus to enter the temple in Jerusalem he's literally in prison because he's sharing the gospel with Gentiles I don't know if you caught that but that's important. The Jewish religious authorities were furious because Paul was not only teaching Jesus resurrected but because he was saying through Jesus Gentiles can become part of the people of God. He's literally in prison for preaching the gospel to Gentiles. He viewed himself as a steward, a safe keeper an administrator of the gospel, that is one responsible to spread the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. He says that this good news was a mystery, but now it's been revealed to him. He says he wrote about it before in brief. Now, we don't know exactly what he's talking about. It could have been a different letter. It could have been the letter to the Colossians. Most likely is what he was talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 where he talks about uh, the mystery of Christ being revealed. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. He says this mystery that has been revealed to him was not made known previously to the sons of men. Sons of men was one of the ways that the Bible talks about Israel. All right? So the mystery of this revelation had not been known to Israel in the past as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So we have two things to grapple with here. First, what is a mystery? In our way of thinking, a mystery is something that we must solve. In fact, in our way of thinking, a mystery is something we can solve. How boring would a mystery book or a mystery movie or something be if you just couldn't solve it? You always know it's going to get solved somehow. And part of the fun of those narratives is how they get solved. In fact, the assumption from our perspective is that if you have enough wit or enough information or intelligence, you can solve a mystery. In the ancient world, people didn't think like that. In Paul's day, a mystery was something that you couldn't discover on your own. It's something that had to be revealed to you from above, from God. So, now that we see that a mystery is something that had to be revealed, what is this mystery that was revealed to Paul and his fellow apostles and the early New Testament prophets? Paul tells us clearly, in no uncertain terms, that the Gentiles are now part of the story of Israel. And that may not seem like much of a mystery. After all, in the Old Testament and prophets, they're full of references to the Gentiles being part of what God was doing in Israel, right? If you go back to the very beginning, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we learn that every human being was created, men and women, in God's image. Created to reflect the goodness and glory and creativity and love of the Creator to the creation. And when we rebelled, God met our rebellion, not only in judgment, but in grace. And in Genesis 1 through 11, you see time after time people failing, and God showing grace, and people failing, and God showing grace, until we get to Genesis 12. And God makes a covenant with a man and his family, Abraham. His Abraham I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation and I'm gonna do that so that your people would be a blessing to the entire world including Gentiles right now that family of Abraham of course eventually became the nation of Israel God's special people called to be an example of God's love his image bearers, so that the Gentiles would come to know God and worship God they were always part of the plan so deep down, the Jews of Paul's day knew the Gentiles were somehow going to be part of God's salvation. They just thought that Gentiles would first have to become Jewish in order to receive that salvation. They thought that the Gentiles would have to assume Jewish customs and law. They thought that the Jews would have supremacy over the Gentiles even in this salvation culture. Well, that's where the mystery revealed to Paul comes in. The mystery wasn't that the Gentiles were somehow going to be part of Israel. The mystery was how. How do the Gentiles fit in the picture? In fact, he uses three words that in Greek fit together. In front of each of these Greek words, he uses this prefix, sum. And it means with. And Jen's going to put the first one up there. Everybody say, ranomai." Sukle Ramnoma, actually. Literally, with heirs. The, the, The mystery revealed is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. Not just second-class citizens, but fellow heirs with Israel. This language of being an heir was tied to the idea of salvation. See, so often I think we think of salvation as, as individuals, like uh, something like an individual afterlife insurance where we confess our sins and we go to church and then we can bank on life after death with Jesus. But that's not really how salvation is described most often in the Bible. You see, God always had a plan uh, to save us not only from something, but for something. We were created to be God's image bearers, and when sin broke that image, God set about on a rescue mission to redeem us and to recreate us. God is setting aside... A whole community for himself, not just a collection of individual people. So in Ephesians, Paul has been telling us that you and I, all who believe in Jesus, were chosen before the foundation of the world to be his people. And up until the time of Christ, the Jews were that people. But in Christ, the mystery has been revealed that this new community of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles so that we are now fellow heirs of this community, fellow heirs of salvation. That was new. That's part of this mystery that's been revealed. Second, we are fellow members of the body. That second word that Jen's going to put up there, susoma. Can you say susoma? Susoma. Soma means body. Like maybe you've heard of psychosomatic symptoms where you know, you have a, something wrong in your mind and it affects your body. Soma means body. Su is that prefix that means with. So with body. We are fellow members of the body. Paul even had to invent a word here to communicate this reality. Susoma doesn't exist anywhere that we know of before Paul wrote it down. And early Christian writers are probably quoting Paul when they use this word. When God does a new thing, a new language is required to describe it. No longer is it Jews and Gentiles, nor is it Jewish and Gentile Christians. It's just Christians, followers of Jesus, a new people, fellow members, susoma of the body. Third, we are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And Jen's going to put that up there. Sumetoka. Huh? Sumetoka with sharing, with sharing, fellow partakers or sharers. Chapter 2, Paul says the Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. The mystery revealed to Paul is not that the Gentiles would come to share in worshiping God with the Jews, but that they didn't have to become Jews in the first place. The mystery revealed is that God created a whole new community of those whose law is to follow Jesus. Most profoundly for Paul, and for us, is the mystery of how all this came to be. It was revealed to Paul and to the apostles and to the New Testament prophets and now us that God himself would make this new community possible in Christ. God himself would put on flesh and dwell among us. Jesus emptied himself and became one of us in great humility. He died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins and when he rose from the grave he defeated the greatest weapon that the enemy has, death itself. You can say amen here. I know it's... That is awesome. So he defeated the enemy's greatest weapon. No one saw that coming. In chapter 2, Paul says, Speaking to the Gentiles, You were dead in your sins and your transgressions. And I can kind of imagine, you know, some of the Jewish readers or the Jewish Christians saying, Yeah, that sounds about right. Those Gentiles were as good as dead. But, he goes on. Remember, Paul himself is a Jewish Christian. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul is saying we were all screwed over. We were all in trouble. We were all going down the road to death. Jews and Gentiles, people of all nations, But God rescued us all in Christ. And this Jesus the Christ ascended and now reigns with the Father. And He sent the Spirit to call us and equip us and teach us all that Jesus taught. This is the great mystery revealed. This is part of the gospel revealed to Paul. And this is the good news. Is that Amen, right? I mean, this is awesome news. And you can see why Paul has been so excited about this mystery revealed to him. It's a mystery that I frankly want to embrace. I want to grab it and make it part of my life. I want to ingest it. Do you want that too? I mean, this is good news. As I read this letter... And think about Paul's life and the life of others that have gone before us and even the life of others that we know right now, other followers of Jesus. I think there's a risk in just saying, let's embrace that gospel and go home. The risk is oversimplifying this and living as though it was just all triumphalism. All good, all the time. Consider Paul for a moment. In verse 7, he writes this of the gospel. He says, It's the gospel of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the work of his power. Do you remember what Paul was doing when he received the gift of this grace and the gift of this power? Patrick just read it for us. Paul was persecuting the church. He was persecuting the church in Jerusalem. He was complicit in the stoning of a young disciple of Jesus named Stephen. And then that wasn't good enough. He was now on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria, to go persecute the church up there. It's in this context, Paul the persecutor, that Jesus appears to him on the Damascus road. And there, Jesus showed Paul grace. It was because of that grace that Paul was not only saved, he was also sent. You see that? Paul wasn't just saved, he was sent. Klein Snodgrass rightly comments, The revelation that comes in the gospel is not only so that people will understand, but so that they may be enlisted in the service of the revealer. He goes on, Paul has made a servant Excuse me. Paul has been made a servant because of the gift of God's grace. The gift obligates. We don't hear grace talked about that very often, do we? Uh, Snodgrass continues, Through grace he became a servant of the gospel. Grace not only connects us to God and Christ and to each other, but it also enlists us and it also empowers us. So often when I hear about the gospel, or about following Jesus, it's all about what we can get from it. We get peace, right, from following Jesus, and we get freedom, and we get forgiveness, a new life. And all of those are good things, and all of those are true things. Indeed, we do receive those things from Jesus. I also hear a lot about how free this grace is. You, can, you can't earn it. That's true, thank God. It is a gift from God, also true, and I appreciate that. It's available to everyone. Indeed, that is true. But is this gift of grace free? That is not true. First of all, grace cost Jesus all that comes and came with emptying Himself and becoming a man. Grace cost Jesus human isolation, being misunderstood, being hated, maybe even worse, being loved only for the food he could provide or the miracles he could do. Most of all, this grace of the gospel costed Jesus his life. Grace is costly. And so is following Jesus. Look at Paul. Yes, he's writing these wonderful things about Jesus and the church and about grace, but he's writing from prison. How can he be so positive while still writing from prison? I think the clue is in verse 1. Paul says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. A prisoner of Jesus? Wait a minute. I thought Paul was a prisoner of Nero. A prisoner of the Roman Empire, right? I don't see Jesus being his guard. Jesus didn't lock him up. Isn't this a misunderstanding? He's a prisoner of misunderstanding. He was falsely accused. He didn't take Trophimus into the temple. Isn't this Satan's fault? Not to Paul. You see, Paul so trusts Jesus that he believes Jesus is actually in charge. That Jesus actually reigns right now. That's why he can say with such authority in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, that all things, all things, all things, even being falsely accused, even getting put in prison for serving Jesus, all things will be summed up, brought together, made right, worked out, brought to completion in Christ. I believe that statement, the reality of of in Christ is the center of Paul's theology, One hundred and sixty-four times Paul references in Christ in his letters. How often do bad things, painful things happen to us where we blame this person or that organization or the devil? How often do we get discouraged by the roadblocks in our lives, feel oppressed as if that person or group or culture was just too much? Hopelessness. Remember, remember, Paul told us in chapter 2, not only have we been made alive together in Christ, but we've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, last I checked, I'm standing, not seated, I'm in Bellingham, and you're seated in a pew in Bellingham. I hope this isn't heaven. Bellingham's a great place, but it's probably going to rain tomorrow, so it's not heaven obviously, what paul 's talking about about being seated in the in the heavenly places in Christ is not that we 're physically now somewhere with him we 're in Bellingham, but what he 's getting at is that because Christ is far above all of those powers, all of the spiritual forces, and all of the earthly forces, and we are identified with Christ, we are part of his family. His clan, we are seated with Him. We don't need to fear those things, those spirits. Christ is above them and we are with Him. See, the good news is only good news if it can be good news when there's bad news. Right? Paul was serious about the gospel in two directions. It's grace and salvation on the one hand and the call on our lives in the other hand. See, when you think about the gospel, do you uh, emphasize happiness over servanthood, grace over repentance, freedom over Jesus being your king, resurrection over the cross? I often do. I like those happier things. But I don't think that Paul saw grace and servanthood to Jesus as being paradoxical. The two go hand in hand. The lie, the lie is that we can be free from any kind of authority. In reality, every one of us will submit to some master, whether it's a person, or your family, or your ego, or your job, or a substance, whatever comforts you, you name it we are all a servant to someone or something and part of the gospel and what paul's really driving home here is that jesus the one who breathed life into you thought you up knows what's best died for you jesus is offering to be your king when you think about it that way if. I can't be my own king and somebody I'm going to be submitted to something or someone. I might as well be Jesus because I know he loves me more than anyone else. I know that he's above all things. This is the king that gives grace and gives us a call. This is the king that saves us from our sins and saves us for something. To live the gospel and to share the gospel. Paul took this so seriously that he was willing to embrace the mystery wherever it led, even to prison, even to death. Jesus never came. I've never read a gospel or even an apocryphal gospel where Jesus is a life insurance salesman. He didn't come saying, get your theology correct. He came saying, follow me. Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads? Because that's embracing the gospel would you pray with me Jesus i and i suspect most of us would love to say yes to that question there's probably a part of us in each of us that uh, that we hold back not wanting to release our grip on our facade of control, on our facade of authority, on our facade of comfort. Lord, you know we need a miracle in order to release our grip. Would you help us? Holy Spirit, take this word that was just preached and let it be more than words. Let it be the power of God working in us, helping us to trust and release and to embrace the mystery that is Christ. Lord, we are weak. We know that when we're tested, we often fail. Do not let your tests be turned into temptations, but deliver us from the evil one. You are the one who is above all things, and you declare that through faith in you, we are seated with you above those things. Help us to live without fear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.